This podcast is part of the Podcavern Network. Check out other Podcavern shows at podcavern.com. The Moth Collection is indebted to many older storytellers. I wear my influences on my sleeve. I'll be releasing readings of a few public domain works that are either referenced in or thematically relevant to my own stories. Today, the first Girelle of Joiry story by Pulp Era Great C.L. Moore. This was published in the October 1934 issue of Weird Tales, a little under two years after the first Conan story had appeared in the same magazine. So the pushback against a strictly male-centered sword and sorcery happened more or less as the genre was born. I like that. Welcome to the second Moth Collection site trip. The Moth Collection Site Trip 2 Black God's Kiss by C. L. Moore 1. They brought in Joiry's tall commander, struggling between two men-at-arms who tightly gripped the ropes which bound their captives' mailed arms. They picked their way between mounds of dead as they crossed the great hall toward the dais where the conquerors sat, and twice they slipped a little in the blood that spattered the flags. When they came to a halt before the mailed figure on the dais, Joiry's commander was breathing hard, and the voice that echoed hollowly under the helmet's confines was hoarse with fury and despair. Guillaume the Conqueror leaned on his mighty sword, hands crossed on its hilt, grinning down from his height upon the furious captive before him. He was a big man, Guillaume, and he looked bigger still in his spattered armor. There was blood on his hard, scarred face, and he was grinning a white grin that split his short, curly beard glitteringly. Very splendid and very dangerous he looked, leaning on his great sword and smiling down upon fallen Joiry's lord, struggling between the stolid men-at-arms. Unshell me this lobster, said Guillaume in his deep, lazy voice. We'll see what sort of face the fellow has who gave us such a battle. Off with his helmet, you. But a third man had to come up and slashed the straps which held the iron helmet on, for the struggles of Joiry's commander were too fierce, even with bound arms, for either of the guards to release their hold. There was a moment of sharp struggle. Then the straps parted, and the helmet rolled loudly across the flagstones. Guillaume's white teeth clicked on a startled oath. He stared. Joiry's lady glared back at him from between her captors, wild red hair tousled, wild lion-yellow eyes ablaze. "'God curse you!' snarled the lady of Joiry between clenched teeth. "'God blast your black heart!' Guillaume scarcely heard her. He was still staring, as men stared when they first set eyes upon Girelle of Joiry. She was tall as most men, 
and as savage as the wildest of them, and the fall of Jouari was bitter enough to break her heart as she stood snarling curses up at her conqueror. The face above her mail might not have seemed fair in a woman's headdress, but in the steel setting of her armor it had a biting sword-edge beauty as keen as the flash of blades. The red hair was short upon her high, defiant head, and the yellow blaze of her eyes held fury as a crucible holds fire. Guillaume's stare melted into a slow smile. A little light kindled behind his eyes as he swept the long, strong lines of her with a practiced gaze. The smile broadened, and suddenly he burst into full-throated laughter, a deep bull bellow of amusement and delight. By the nails, he roared. Here's welcome for the warrior. And what forfeit do you offer, pretty one, for your life? She blazed a curse at him. So, Naughty words for a mouth so fair, my lady. Well, we'll not deny you put up a gallant battle. No man could have done better, and many have done worse. But against Guillaume. He inflated his splendid chest and grinned down at her from the depths of his jutting beard. Come to me, pretty one, he commanded. I'll wager your mouth is sweeter than your words. Girel drove a spurred heel into the shin of one guard and twisted from his grip as he howled, bringing up an iron knee into the abdomen of the other. She had writhed from their grip and made three long strides toward the door before Guillaume caught her. She felt his arms closing about her from behind and lashed out with heels in a futile assault upon his leg armor, twisting like a maniac, fighting with her knees and spurs, straining hopelessly at the ropes which bound her arms. Guillaume laughed and whirled her round, grinning down into the blaze of her yellow eyes. Then, deliberately, he set a fist under her chin and tilted her mouth up to his. There was a Cessation of her hoarse curses. By heaven, that's like kissing a sword blade, said Guillaume, lifting his lips at last. Girel choked something that was mercifully muffled as she darted her head sidewise like a serpent striking and sank her teeth into his neck. She missed the jugular by a fraction of an inch. Guillaume said nothing then. He sought her head with a steady hand, found it despite her wild writhing, sank iron fingers deep into the hinges of her jaw, forcing her teeth relentlessly apart. When he had her free, he glared down into the yellow hell of her eyes for an instant. The blaze of them was hot enough to scorch his scarred face. He grinned and lifted his ungauntleted hand. And with one heavy blow in the face, he knocked her halfway across the room. She lay still upon the flags. Two.
Girelle opened her yellow eyes upon darkness. She lay quiet for a while, collecting her scattered thoughts. By degrees it came back to her, and she muffled upon her arm a sound that was half curse and half sob. Joiry had fallen. For a time she lay rigid in the dark, forcing herself to the realization. The sound of feet shifting on stone nearby brought her out of that particular misery. She sat up cautiously, feeling about her to determine in what part of Joiry its liege lady was imprisoned. She knew that the sound she had heard must be a sentry, and by the dank smell of the darkness that she was underground. In one of the little dungeon cells, of course. With careful quietness, she got to her feet, muttering a curse as her head reeled for an instant, and then began to throb. In the utter dark, she felt around the cell. Presently she came to a little wooden stool in a corner and was satisfied. She gripped one leg of it with firm fingers and made her soundless way around the wall until she had located the door. The sentry remembered, afterward, that he had heard the wildest shriek for help which had ever rung in his ears, and he remembered unbolting the door. Afterward, until they found him lying inside the locked cell with a cracked skull, he remembered nothing. Girelle crept up the dark stairs of the north turret, murder in her heart. Many little hatreds she had known in her life, but no such blaze as this. Before her eyes in the night, she could see Guillaume's scornful, scarred face laughing the little jutting beard split with the whiteness of his mirth. Upon her mouth she felt the remembered weight of his, about her the strength of his arms, and such a blast of hot fury came over her that she reeled a little and clutched at the wall for support. She went on in a haze of red anger and something like madness burning in her brain as a resolve slowly took shape out of the chaos of her hate. When that thought came to her, she paused again, mid-step upon the stairs, and was conscious of a little coldness blowing over her. Then it was gone, and she shivered a little, shook her shoulders and grinned wolfishly, and went on. By the stars she could see, through the arrow slits in the wall, it must be near to midnight. She went softly on the stairs, and she encountered no one. Her little tower room at the top was empty. Even the straw pallet where the serving wench slept had not been used that night. Girelle got herself out of her armor alone, somehow, after much striving and twisting. Her doe-skin shirt was stiff with sweat and stained with blood. She tossed it disdainfully into a corner. The fury in her eyes had cooled now to a contained and secret flame. She smiled to herself as she slipped a fresh shirt of doeskin over her tousled red head and donned a brief tunic of link mail. On her legs she buckled the greaves of some forgotten legionary, relic of the not long past days when Rome still ruled the world. She thrust a dagger through her belt 
and took her own long two-handed sword, bare-bladed, in her grip. Then she went down the stairs again. She knew there must have been revelry and feasting in the great hall that night, and by the silence hanging so heavily now, she was sure that most of her enemies lay still in drunken slumber. And she experienced a swift regret for the gallons of her good French wine so wasted. And the thought flashed through her head that a determined woman with a sharp sword might work some little damage among the drunken sleepers before she was overpowered. But she put that idea by, for Guillaume would have posted sentries to spare, and she must not give up her secret freedom so fruitlessly. Down the dark stairs she went, and crossed one corner of the vast central hall whose darkness she was sure hid wind-deadened sleepers, and so into the lesser dimness of the rough little chapel that Joiry boasted. She had been sure she would find Father Gervais there, and she was not mistaken. He rose from his knees before the altar, dark in his robe, the starlight through the narrow window shining upon his tonsure. My daughter, he whispered, my daughter, how have you escaped? Shall I find you a mount? If you can pass the sentries, you should be in your cousin's castle by daybreak. She hushed him with a lifted hand. No, she said. It is not outside I go this night. I have a more perilous journey even than that to make. Shrive me, father. He stared at her. What is it? She dropped to her knees before him and gripped the rough cloth of his habit with urgent fingers. Shrive me, I say. I go down into hell tonight to pray the devil for a weapon, and it may be I shall not return. Gervaise bent and gripped her shoulders with hands that shook. Look at me, he demanded. Do you know what you're saying? You go down, she said it firmly. Only you and I know that passage, father, and not even we can be sure of what lies beyond. But to gain a weapon against that man, I would venture into perils even worse than that. If I thought you meant it, he whispered, I would waken Guillaume now and give you into his arms. It would be a kinder fate, my daughter. It's that I would walk through hell to escape, she whispered back fiercely. Can't you see? Oh. God knows I'm not innocent of the ways of light loving, but to be any man's fancy for a night or two before he snaps my neck or sells me into slavery? And above all, if that man were Guillaume, can't you understand? That would be shame enough, nodded Gervais. But think, Girel, for that shame there is atonement and absolution, and for that death the gates of heaven opened wide. But this other, Girel, Girel, never through all eternity may you come out, body or soul, if you venture down. She shrugged. To wreak my vengeance upon Guillaume, I would go if I knew I should burn in hell forever. But Girel, I do not think you understand. This is worse fate than the depths of hellfire.
This is, this is beyond all the bounds of the hells we know. And I think Satan's hottest flames were the breath of paradise compared to what may befall there. I know. Do you think I'd venture down if I could not be sure? Where else would I find such a weapon as I need, save outside God's dominion? Jarrell, you shall not, Gervais. I go. Will you shrive me? The hot yellow eyes blazed into his, lambent in the starlight. After a moment, he dropped his head. You are my lady. I will give you God's blessing. But it will not avail you. There. Three. She went down into the dungeons again. She went down a long way through utter dark, over stones that were oozy and odorous with moisture, through blackness that had never known the light of day. She might have been a little afraid at other times, but that steady flame of hatred burning behind her eyes was a torch to light the way, and she could not wipe from her memory the feel of Guillaume's arms about her, the scornful press of his lips on her mouth. She whimpered a little, low in her throat, and a hot gust of hate went over her. In the solid blackness she came at length to a wall, and she set herself to pulling the loose stones from this with her free hand, for she would not lay down the sword. They had never been laid in mortar, and they came out easily. When the way was clear, she stepped through, and found her feet upon a downward sloping ramp of smooth stone. She cleared the rubble away from the hole in the wall, and enlarged it enough for a quick passage. For when she came back this way, if she did, it might well be that she would come very fast. At the bottom of the slope she dropped to her knees on the cold floor and felt about. Her fingers traced the outline of a circle the veriest crack in the stone. She felt until she found the ring in its center. That ring was of the coldest metal she had ever known, and the smoothest. She could put no name to it. The daylight had never shone upon such metal. She tugged. The stone was reluctant, and at last she took her sword in her teeth and put both hands to the lifting. Even then it taxed the limit of her strength, and she was strong as many men. But at last it rose, with the strangest sighing sound, and a little prickle of goose flesh rippled over her. Now she took the sword back into her hand, and knelt on the rim of the invisible blackness below. She had gone down this path once before, and once only and never thought to find any necessity in life strong enough to drive her down again. There was, she thought, no such passage in all the world save here. It had not been built for human feet to travel. It had not been built for feet at all. It was a narrow, polished shaft that corkscrewed round and round. A snake might have slipped in it and gone shooting down round and round in dizzy circles, 
but no snake on earth was big enough to fill that shaft. No human travelers had worn the sides of the spiral so smooth, and she did not care to speculate on what creatures had polished it so, through what ages of passage. She might never have made that first trip down, nor anyone after her, had not some unknown human hacked the notches which made it possible to descend slowly. That is, she thought, it must have been a human. At any rate, the notches were roughly shaped for hands and feet, and spaced not too far apart, but who and when and how, she could not even guess. As to the beings who made the shaft in long-forgotten ages, well, there were devils on earth before man, and the world was very old. She turned on her face and slid feet first into the curving tunnel, that first time, she and Gervais had gone down in sweating terror of what lay below, and with devils tugging at their heels. Now she slid easily, not bothering to find toeholds, but slipping swiftly round and round the long spirals with only her hands to break the speed when she went too fast. Round and round she went, round and round. It was a long way down. Before she had gone very far, the curious dizziness she had known before came over her again, a dizziness not entirely induced by the spirals she whirled around, but a deeper, atomic unsteadiness, as if not only she, but also the substances around her were shifting. There was something queer about the angles of those skirts. They led into the unknown and the dark, but it seemed to her, obscurely, that they led into deeper darkness and mystery than the merely physical, as if, though she could not put it clearly even into thoughts, the peculiar and exact lines of the tunnel had been carefully angled to lead through polydimensional space as well as through the underground. Perhaps through time, too. Down and down. She was sliding fast, but she knew how long it would be. On that first trip they had taken alarm as the passage spiraled so endlessly, and with thoughts of the long climb back, had tried to stop before it was too late. They had found it impossible. Once embarked, there was no halting. She had tried, and such waves of sick blurring had come over her that she came near to unconsciousness. It was as if she had tried to halt some inexorable process of nature, half finished. They could only go on. The very atoms of their bodies shrieked in a rebellion against a reversal of the change. And the way up, when they returned, had not been difficult. They had had visions of a back-breaking climb up interminable curves, but again, the uncanny difference of those angles from those they knew was manifested. In a queer way, they seemed to defy gravity, or perhaps led through some way outside the power of it. They had been sick and dizzy on the return, as on the way down, but through the clouds of that confusion it had seemed to them that they slipped as easily up the shaft as they had gone down it, or perhaps that, once in the tunnel, 
there was neither up nor down. The passage leveled gradually. This was the worst part for a human to travel, though it must have eased the speed of whatever beings the shaft was made for. It was too narrow for her to turn in, and she had to lever herself face down and feet first, along the horizontal smoothness of the floor, pushing with her hands. She was glad when their questing heels met open space, and she slid from the mouth of the shaft and stood upright in the dark. Here she paused to collect herself. Yes, this was the beginning of the long passage she and Father Gervais had traveled on that long-ago journey of exploration. By the veriest accident they had found the place, and only the veriest bravado had brought them thus far. He had gone on a greater distance than she. She was younger then, and more amenable to authority, and had come back white-faced in the torchlight, and hurried her up the shaft again. She went on carefully, feeling her way, remembering what she herself had seen in the darkness a little farther on, wondering in spite of herself, and with a tiny catch at her heart, what it was that had sent Father Gervais so hastily back. She had never been entirely satisfied with his explanations. It had been about here, or was it a little farther on? The stillness was like a roaring in her ears. Then, ahead of her, the darkness moved. It was just that, a vast, imponderable shifting of the solid dark. Jesus, this was new? She gripped the cross at her throat with one hand, and her sword hilt with the other. Then it was upon her, striking like a hurricane, whirling her against the walls, and shrieking in her ears like a thousand wind devils. A wild cyclone of the dark that buffeted her mercilessly and tore at her flying hair and raved in her ears with the myriad voices of all lost things crying in the night. The voices were piteous in their terror and loneliness. Tears came to her eyes, even as she shivered with nameless dread, for the whirlwind was alive with a dreadful instinct, an animate thing sweeping through the dark of the underground an unholy thing that made her flesh crawl, even though it touched her heart with its pitiful little lost voices wailing in the wind, where no wind could possibly be. Then it was gone. In that one flash of an instant it vanished, leaving no whisper to commemorate its passage. Only in the heart of it could one hear the sad little voices wailing or the wild shriek of the wind. She found herself standing stunned, her sword yet gripped futilely in one hand and the tears running down her face. Poor little lost voices, wailing. She wiped the tears away with a shaking hand and set her teeth hard against the weakness of a reaction that flooded her. Yet it was a good five minutes before she could force herself on. After a few steps, her knees ceased to tremble. The floor was dry and smooth underfoot. It sloped a little downward, and she wondered into what unplumbed deeps she had descended by now. 
The silence had fallen heavily again, and she found herself straining for some other sound than the soft padding of her own boots. Then her foot slipped in sudden wetness. She bent, exploring fingers outstretched, feeling without reason that the wetness would be red if she could see it. But her fingers traced an immense outline of a footprint, splayed and three-toed like a frog's, but of monster size. It was a fresh footprint. She had a vivid flash of memory, that thing she had glimpsed in the torchlight on the other trip down. But she had had light then, and now she was blind in the dark. The creature's natural habitat. For a moment she was not Girelle of Joirie, vengeful fury on the trail of a devilish weapon, but a frightened woman alone in the unholy dark. That memory had been so vivid. Then she saw Guillaume's scornful, laughing face again, and something hot and sustaining swept over her like a thin flame, and she was Joirie again, vengeful and resolute. She went on more slowly, her sword swinging in a semicircle before every third step, that she might not be surprised too suddenly by some nightmare monster clasping her in smothering arms. But the flesh crept upon her unprotected back. The smooth passage went on and on. She could feel the cold walls on either hand, and her upswung sword grazed the roof. It was like crawling through some worm's tunnel, blindly under the weight of countless tons of earth. She felt the pressure of it above and about her, overwhelming, and found herself praying that the end of this tunnel crawling might come soon, whatever the end might bring. But when it came, it was a stranger thing than she had ever dreamed. Abruptly, she felt the immense, imponderable oppression seize. No longer was she conscious of the tons of earth pressing about her. The walls had fallen away, and her feet struck a sudden rubble instead of the smooth floor. But the darkness that had bandaged her eyes was changed to indescribably. It was no longer darkness, but void. Not an absence of light, but simple nothingness. Abysses opened around her, yet she could see nothing. She only knew that she stood at the threshold of some immense space and sensed nameless things about her. And at her throat, something constricted painfully. She lifted her hand and found the chain of her crucifix taut and vibrant around her neck. At that, she smiled, a little grimly, for she began to understand. The crucifix. She found her hand shaking despite herself, but she unfastened the chain and dropped the cross to the ground. Then she gasped. All about her, as suddenly as the awakening from a dream, the nothingness had opened out into undreamed-of distances. She stood high on a hilltop under a sky spangled with strange stars. Below, she caught glimpses of misty plains and valleys with mountain peaks rising far away. 
and at her feet a ravening circle of small, slavering, blind things leaped with clashing teeth. They were obscene and hard to distinguish against the darkness of the hillside, and the noise they made was revolting. Her sword swung up of itself almost, and slashed furiously at the little dark horrors leaping up around her legs. They died squashily, splattering her bare thighs with unpleasantness, and after a few had gone silent under the blade, the rest fled into the dark with quick, frightened pantings, their feet making a queer splashing on the stones. Girelle gathered a handful of the coarse grass which grew there, and wiped her legs of the obscene splatters, looking about with quickened breath upon this land so unholy that one who bore a cross might not even see it. Here, if anywhere, one might find a weapon such as she sought. Behind her, in the hillside, was the low tunnel opening from which she had emerged. Overhead, the strange stars shone. She did not recognize a single constellation, and if the brighter sparks were planets, they were strange ones, tinged with violet and green and yellow. One was vividly crimson, like a point of fire. Far out over the rolling land below, she could discern a column of light. It did not blaze, nor illuminate the dark about. It cast no shadows. It simply was a great pillar of luminance towering high in the night. It seemed artificial, perhaps man-made, though she scarcely dared hope for men here. She half expected, despite her brave words, to come out upon the storied and familiar red-hot pave to hell, and this pleasant starlit land surprised her and made her wary. The things that built the tunnel could not have been human. She had no right to expect men here. She was a little stunned by finding open sky so far underground, though she was intelligent enough to realize that however she had come, she was not underground now. No cavity in the earth could contain this starry sky. She came of a credulous age, and she accepted her surroundings without too much questioning, though she was a little disappointed, if the truth were known, in the pleasantness of the mistily starlit place. The fiery streets of hell would have been a likelier locality in which to find a weapon against Guillaume. When she had cleansed her sword on the grass and wiped her legs clean, she turned slowly down the hill. The distant column beckoned her, and after a moment of indecision, she turned toward it. She had no time to waste, and this was the likeliest place to find what she sought. The coarse grass brushed her legs and whispered around her feet. She stumbled now and then on the rubble, for the hill was steep, but she reached the bottom without mishap, and struck out across the meadows toward that blaze of faraway brilliance. It seemed to her that she walked more lightly, somehow. The grass scarcely bent underfoot, and she found she could take long sailing strides like one who runs with wings on his heels. It felt like a dream. 
The gravity pull of the place must have been less than she was accustomed to, but she only knew that she was skimming over the ground with amazing speed. Traveling so, she passed through the meadows over the strange coarse grass, over a brook or two that spoke endlessly to itself in a curious language that was almost speech, certainly not the usual gurgle of earth's running water. Once she ran into a blotch of darkness, like some pocket of void in the air, and struggled through gasping and blinking outraged eyes. She was beginning to realize that the land was not so innocently normal as it looked. On and on she went, at that surprising speed, while the meadow skimmed past beneath her flying feet, and gradually the light drew nearer. She saw now that it was a round tower of sheeted luminance, as if walls of solid flame rose up from the ground. Yet it seemed to be steady, nor did it cast any illumination upon the sky. Before much time had elapsed, with her dream-like speed, she had almost reached her goal. The ground was becoming marshy underfoot, and presently the smell of swamps rose in her nostrils, and she saw that between her and the light stretched a belt of unstable ground with black reedy grass. Here and there she could see dim white blotches moving. They might be beasts, or only wisps of mist. The starlight was not very illuminating. She began to pick her way carefully across the black quaking morasses, Where the tufts of grass rose, she found firmer ground, and she leaped from clump to clump with that amazing lightness, so that her feet barely touched the black ooze. Here and there, slow bubbles rose through the mud and broke thickly. She did not like the place. Halfway across, she saw one of the white blotches approaching her with slow, erratic movements. It bumped along unevenly, and at first she thought it might be inanimate, its approach was so indirect and purposeless. Then it blundered nearer, with that queer bumpy gait, splashing as it came. In the starlight she saw suddenly what it was, and for an instant her heart paused and sickness rose overwhelmingly in her throat. It was a woman. A beautiful woman whose white bare body had the curves and loveliness of some marble statue. She was crouching like a frog, and as Girelle watched in stupefaction, she straightened her legs abruptly and leaped as a frog leaps, only more clumsily, falling forward into the ooze a little distance beyond the watching woman. She did not seem to see Girelle. The mud-spattered face was blank. She blundered on through the mud in awkward leaps. Girelle watched until the woman was no more than a white wandering blur in the dark, and above the shock of that sight, pity was rising, and uncomprehending resentment against whatever had brought so lovely a creature into this, into blundering in frog leaps aimlessly through the mud with empty mind and blind staring eyes. For the second time that night, she knew the sting of unaccustomed tears 
as she went on. The sight, though, had given her reassurance. The human form was not unknown here. There might be leathery devils with hoofs and horns, such as she still half expected, but she would not be alone in her humanity, though if all the rest were as piteously mindless as the one she had seen, she did not follow that thought. It was too unpleasant. She was glad when the marsh was past, and she need not see any longer the awkward white shapes bumping along through the dark. She struck across the narrow space which lay between her and the tower. She saw now that it was a building, and that the light composed it. She could not understand that, but she saw it. Walls and columns outlined the tower, solid sheets of light with definite boundaries, not radiant. As she came nearer, she saw that it was in motion, apparently spurting up from some source underground, as if the light illuminated sheets of water rushing upward under great pressure. Yet she felt intuitively that it was not water, but incarnate light. She came forward hesitantly, gripping her sword. The area around the tremendous pillar was paved with something black and smooth that did not reflect the light. Out of it sprang the uprushing walls of brilliance with their sharply defined edges. The magnitude of the thing dwarfed her to infinitesimal size. She stared upward with undazzled eyes, trying to understand. If there could be such a thing as solid, non-radiating light, this was it. Four. She was very near under the mighty tower before she could see the details of the building clearly. They were strange to her, great pillars and arches around the base, and one stupendous portal, all molded out of the rushing, prisoned light. She turned toward the opening after a moment, for the light had a tangible look. She did not believe she could have walked through it, even had she dared. When that tremendous portal arched over her, she peered in, affrighted by the very size of the place. She thought she could hear the hiss and spurt of the light surging upward. She was looking into a mighty globe inside, a hall shaped like the interior of a bubble, though the curve was so vast she was scarcely aware of it. And in the very center of the globe floated a light. Girel blinked. A light dwelling in a bubble of light. It glowed there in midair with a pale, steady flame that was somehow alive and animate, and brighter than the serene illumination of the building, for it hurt her eyes to look at it directly. She stood on the threshold and stared, not quite daring to venture in. And as she hesitated, a change came over the light, a flash of rose tinged its pallor. The rose deepened and darkened until it took on the color of blood, and the shape underwent strange changes. It lengthened, drew itself out narrowly, 
split at the bottom into two branches, put out two tendrils from the top. The blood red paled again, and the light somehow lost its brilliance, receded into the depths of the thing that was forming. Girelle clutched her sword and forgot to breathe, watching. The light was taking on the shape of a human being, of a woman, of a tall woman in mail, her red hair tousled, and her eyes staring straight into the duplicate eyes at the portal. Welcome, said the Girel, suspended in the center of the globe, her voice deep and resonant and clear in spite of the distance between them. Girel at the door held her breath, wondering and afraid. This was herself, in every detail, a mirrored Girelle. That was it, a Girelle mirrored upon a surface which blazed and smoldered with barely repressed light, so that the eyes gleamed with it, and the whole figure seemed to hold its shape by an effort, only by that effort restraining itself from resolving into pure, formless light again. But the voice was not her own. It shook and resounded with a knowledge as alien as the light-built walls. It mocked her. It said, Welcome. Enter into the portals, woman. She looked up warily at the rushing walls about her. Instinctively, she drew back. Enter, enter, urged that mocking voice from her own mirrored lips and there was a note in it she did not like. Enter! cried the voice again, this time a command. Girelle's eyes narrowed. Something intuitive warned her back, and yet she drew the dagger she had thrust in her belt, and with a quick motion she tossed it into the great globe-shaped hall. It struck the floor without a sound, and a brilliant light flared up around it, so brilliant she could not look upon what was happening. But it seemed to her that the knife expanded, grew large and nebulous and ringed with dazzling light. In less time than it takes to tell, it had faded out of sight as if the very atoms which composed it had flown apart and dispersed in the golden glow of that mighty bubble. The dazzle faded with the knife, leaving Girelle staring dazedly at a bare floor. Stay out, then, said the voice. You've more intelligence than I thought. Well, what would you hear? Girelle found her voice with an effort. I seek a weapon, she said. A weapon against a man I so hate that upon earth there is none terrible enough for my need. You so hate him, eh? mused the voice. With all my heart. With all your heart, echoed the voice, and there was an undernote of laughter in it that she did not understand. The echoes of that mirth ran round and round the great globe. Girelle felt her cheeks burn with resentment against some implication in the derision which she could not put a name to. When the echoes of the laugh had faded, the voice said indifferently, 
Give the man what you find at the Black Temple in the lake. I make you a gift of it. The lips that were Girel's twisted into a laugh of purest mockery. Then all about that figure so perfectly her own, the light flared out. She saw the outlines melting fluidly as she turned her dazzled eyes away. Before the echoes of that derision had died, a blinding, formless light burned once more in the midst of the bubble. Girel turned and stumbled away under the mighty column of the tower, a hand to her dazzled eyes. Not until she had reached the edge of the black, unreflecting circle that paved the ground around the pillar did she realize that she knew no way of finding the lake where her weapon lay. And not until then did she remember how fatal it is said to be to accept a gift from a demon. Buy it or earn it, but never accept the gift. Well, she shrugged and stepped out upon the grass. She must surely be damned by now for having ventured down of her own will into this curious place for such a purpose as hers. The soul can be lost but once. She turned her face up to the strange stars and wondered in what direction her course lay. The sky looked blankly down upon her with its myriad meaningless eyes. A star fell as she watched, and in her superstitious soul she took it for an omen and set off boldly over the dark meadows in the direction where the bright streak had faded. No swamps guarded the way here, and she was soon skimming along over the grass with that strange dancing gait that the lightness of the place allowed her. And as she went she was remembering, as from long ago in some other far world, a man's arrogant mirth and the press of his mouth on hers. Hatred bubbled up hotly within her and broke from her lips in a little savage laugh of anticipation. What dreadful thing awaited her in the temple in the lake? What punishment from hell to be loosed by her own hands upon Guillaume? And though her soul was the price it cost her, she would count it a fair bargain if she could drive the laughter from his mouth and bring terror into the eyes that mocked her. Thoughts like these kept her company for a long way upon her journey. She did not think to be lonely or afraid in the uncanny darkness across which no shadows fell from that mighty column behind her. The unchanging meadows flew past underfoot lightly as meadows in a dream. It might almost have been that the earth moved instead of herself, so effortlessly did she go. She was sure now that she was heading in the right direction, for two more stars had fallen in the same arc across the sky. The meadows were not untenanted. Sometimes she felt presences near her in the dark, and once she ran full tilt into a nest of little yapping horrors like those on the hilltop. They lunged up about her with clicking teeth, mad with a blind ferocity, and she swung her sword in frantic circles, sickened by the noise of them lunging splashily through the grass and splattering her sword with their deaths. She beat them off and went on, fighting her own sickness, for she had never known anything quite so nauseating as these little monstrosities. She crossed a brook 
that talked to itself in the darkness with that queer murmuring which came so near to speech. And a few strides beyond it she paused suddenly, feeling the ground tremble with the rolling thunder of hoofbeats approaching. She stood still, searching the dark anxiously, and presently the earth-shaking beat grew louder, and she saw a white blur flung wide across the dimness to her left, and the sound of hoofs deepened and grew. Then out of the night swept a herd of snow-white horses. Magnificently they ran, manes tossing, tails streaming, feet pounding a rhythmic, heart-stirring roll along the ground. She caught her breath at the beauty of their motion. They swept by a little distance away, tossing their heads, spurning the ground with scornful feet. But as they came abreast of her, she saw one blunder and stumble against the next, and that one shook his head bewilderedly, and suddenly she realized that they were blind, all running so splendidly in a deeper dark than even she groped through. And she saw too their coats were roughened with sweat, and foam dripped from their lips, and their nostrils were flaring pools of scarlet. Now and again one stumbled from pure exhaustion. Yet they ran, frantically, blindly through the dark, driven by something outside their comprehension. As the last one of all swept by her, sweat-crusted and staggering, she saw him toss his head high, spattering foam, and whinny shrilly to the stars. And it seemed to her that the sound was strangely articulate. Almost she heard the echoes of a name, Julien! Julien! In that high, despairing sound, and the incongruity of it, the bitter despair clutched at her heart so sharply that for the third time that night she knew the sting of tears. Then another star fell across the sky, and she hurried ahead, closing her mind to the strange incomprehensible pathos that made an undernote of tears to the starry dark of this land. And the thought was growing in her mind that, though she had come into no brimstone pit where horned devils pranced over flames, yet perhaps it was, after all, a sort of hell through which she ran. Presently, in the distance, she caught a glimmer of something bright. The ground dipped after that, and she lost it, and skimmed through a hollow where pale things wavered away from her into the deeper dark. She never knew what they were, and was glad. When she came up onto higher ground again, she saw it more clearly, an expanse of dim brilliance ahead. She hoped it was a lake, and ran more swiftly. It was a lake, a lake that could never have existed outside some obscure hell like this. She stood on the brink doubtfully, wondering if this could be the place the light devil had meant. Black Shining water stretched out before her, heaving gently with a motion unlike that of any water she had ever seen before. And in the depths of it, like fireflies caught in ice, gleamed myriad small lights. They were fixed there immovably, 
not stirring with the motion of the water. As she watched, something hissed above her and a streak of light split the dark air. She looked up in time to see something bright curving across the sky to fall without a splash into the water, and small ripples of phosphorescence spread sluggishly toward the shore, where they broke at her feet with the queerest whispering sound, as if each succeeding ripple spoke the syllable of a word. She looked up, trying to locate the origin of the falling lights, but the strange stars looked down upon her blankly. She bent and stared down into the center of the spreading ripples, and where the thing had fallen she thought a new light twinkled through the water. She could not determine what it was, and after a curious moment she gave the question up and began to cast about for the temple the light devil had spoken of. After a moment she thought she saw something dark in the center of the lake, and when she had stared for a few minutes it gradually became clearer, an arch of darkness against the starry background of the water. It might be a temple. She strolled slowly along the brim of the lake, trying to get a closer view of it, for the thing was no more than a darkness against the spangles of light, like some void in the sky where no stars shine. And presently she stumbled over something in the grass. She looked down with startled yellow eyes and saw a strange indistinguishable darkness. It had solidity to the feel, but scarcely to the eye, for she could not quite focus upon it. It was like trying to see something that did not exist save as a void, a darkness in the grass. It had the shape of a step, and when she followed with her eyes she saw that it was the beginning of a dim bridge stretching out over the lake, narrow and curved and made out of nothingness. It seemed to have no surface, and its edges were difficult to distinguish from the lesser gloom surrounding it. But the thing was tangible, an arch carved out of the solid dark, and it led out in the direction she wished to go. For she was naively sure now that the dim blot in the center of the lake was the temple she was searching for. The falling stars had guided her, and she could not have gone astray. So she set her teeth and gripped her sword and put her foot upon the bridge. It was rock firm under her, but scarcely more than a foot or so wide and without rails. When she had gone a step or two she began to feel dizzy, for under her the water heaved with a motion that made her head swim and the stars twinkled eerily in its depths. She dared not look away for fear of missing her footing on the narrow arch of darkness. Halfway across, the heaving of the water and the illusion of the vast constellated spaces beneath and the look her bridge had of being no more than empty space ahead combined to send her head reeling, and as she stumbled on, the bridge seemed to be wavering with her, swinging in gigantic arcs across the starry void below. Now she could see the temple more closely, though scarcely more clearly than from the shore. It looked to be no more than an outlined emptiness against the star-crowded brilliance behind it, etching its arches and columns of blankness upon the twinkling waters. The bridge came down in a long dim swoop to its doorway. 
Girel took the last few yards at a reckless run and stopped breathless under the arch that made the temple's vague doorway. She stood there panting and staring about narrow-eyed, sword poised in her hand. For though the place was empty and very still, she felt a presence even as she set her foot upon the floor of it. She was staring about a little space of blankness in the starry lake. It seemed to be no more than that. She could see the walls and columns where they were outlined against the water and where they made darknesses in the star-flecked sky. But where there was only dark behind them, she could see nothing. It was a tiny place, no more than a few square yards of emptiness upon the face of the twinkling waters. And in its center, an image stood. She stared at it in silence, feeling a curious compulsion growing within her, like a vague command from something outside herself. The image was of some substance of nameless black, unlike the material which composed the building, for even in the dark she could see it clearly. It was a semi-human figure, crouching forward with outthrust head, sexless and strange. Its one central eye was closed as if in rapture, and its mouth was pursed for a kiss. And though it was but an image without even the semblance of life, she felt unmistakably the presence of something alive in the temple, something so alien and innominate that instinctively she drew away. She stood there for a full minute, reluctant to enter the place where so alien a being dwelt, and slowly she became aware that all the lines and angles of the half-seen building were curved to make the image their center and focus. The very bridge swooped its long arc to complete the centering. As she watched, it seemed to her that through the arches of the columns even the stars in the lake and the sky were grouped in patterns which took the image for their focus. Every line and curve in the dim world seemed to sweep round toward the squatting thing before her with its closed eye and expectant mouth. Gradually, the universal focusing of lines began to exert its influence upon her. She took a hesitant step forward without realizing the motion. But that step was all the dormant urge within her needed. With her one motion forward, the compulsion closed down upon her with whirlwind impetuosity. Helplessly, she felt herself advancing. Helplessly, with one small, sane portion of her mind, she realized the madness that was gripping her, the blind, irresistible urge to do with every visible line in the temple's construction was made to compel. With stars swirling around her, she advanced across the floor and laid her hands upon the rounded shoulders of the image. The sword, forgotten, making a sort of accolade against its hunched neck, and lifted her red head and laid her mouth blindly against the pursed lips of the image. In a dream she took that kiss. In a dream of dizziness and confusion she seemed to feel the iron-cold lips stirring under hers. And through the union of that kiss, warm-blooded woman, with image of nameless stone, through the meeting of their mouths, 
something entered into her very soul, something cold and stunning, something alien beyond any words. It lay upon her shuddering soul like some frigid weight from the void, a bubble holding something unthinkably alien and dreadful. She could feel the heaviness of it upon some intangible part of her that shrank from the touch. It was like the weight of remorse or despair, only far colder and stranger and, somehow, more ominous, as if this weight were but the egg from which things might hatch too dreadful to put even into thoughts. The moment of the kiss could have been no longer than a breath's space, but to her it was timeless. In a dream she felt the compulsion falling from her at last. She dropped her hands from its shoulders, finding the sword heavy in her grasp and staring dully at it for a while before clarity began its return to her cloudy mind. When she became completely aware of herself once more, she was standing with slack body and dragging head before the blind, rapturous image, that dead weight upon her heart as dreary as an old sorrow. And with returning clarity, the most staggering terror came over her, swiftly and suddenly, terror of the image and the temple of darkness and the coldly spangled lake and of the whole white, dim, dreadful world about her. Desperately she longed for home again, even the red fury of hatred and the press of Guillaume's mouth and the hot arrogance of his eyes again. Anything but this. She found herself running without knowing why. Her feet skimmed over the narrow bridge lightly as a gull's wings dipping the water. In a brief instant the starry void of the lake flashed by beneath her, and the solid earth was underfoot. She saw the great column of light far away across the dark meadows, and beyond it a hilltop rising against the stars. And she ran. She ran with terror at her heels, and devils howling in the wind her own speed made. She ran from her own curiously alien body, heavy with its weight of inexplicable doom. She passed through the hollow where pale things wavered away. She fled over the uneven meadows in a frenzy of terror. She ran and ran in those long light bounds the lesser gravity allowed her, fleeter than a deer, and her own panic choked in her throat, and that weight upon her soul dragged at her too drearily for tears. She fled to escape it and could not and the ominous certainty that she carried something too dreadful to think of grew and grew. For a long while she skimmed over the grass, tirelessly wing-heeled, her red hair flying. The panic died after a while, but that sense of heavy disaster did not die. She felt somehow that tears would ease her, but something in the frigid darkness of her soul froze her tears in the ice of that grey and alien chill. And gradually, through the inner dark, a fierce anticipation took form in her mind. Revenge upon Guillaume. She had taken from the temple only a kiss, so it was that which she must deliver to him 
and savagely she exulted in the thought of what that kiss would release upon him, unsuspecting. She did not know, but it filled her with fierce joy to guess. She had passed the column and skirted the morass where the white, blundering forms still bumped along awkwardly through the ooze, and was crossing the coarse grass toward the nearing hill when the sky began to pale along the horizon. And with that pallor a fresh terror took hold upon her, a wild horror of daylight in this unholy land. She was not sure if it was the light itself she so dreaded, or what that light would reveal in the dark stretches she had traversed so blindly, what unknown horrors she had skirted in the night. But she knew instinctively that if she valued her sanity she must be gone before the light had risen over the land. And she redoubled her efforts, spurring her wearying limbs to yet more skimming speed. But it would be a close race, for already the stars were blurring out and a flush of curious green was broadening along the sky, and around her the air was turning to a vague, unpleasant grey. She toiled up the steep hillside breathlessly. When she was halfway up, her own shadow began to take form upon the rocks, and it was unfamiliar and dreadfully significant of something just outside her range of understanding. She could see the top of the hill above her, dark against the paling sky, and she toiled up in frantic haste, clutching her sword and feeling that if she had to look in the full light upon the dreadful little abominations that had snapped around her feet when she first emerged, she would collapse into screaming hysteria. The cave mouth yawned before her, invitingly black, as refuge from the dawning light behind her. She knew an almost irresistible desire to turn and look back from this vantage point across the land she had traversed, and gripped her sword hard to conquer the perverse longing. There was a scuffling in the rocks at her feet, and she set her teeth in her underlip and swung viciously in brief arcs without looking down. She heard small squeakings and the splashy sound of feet upon the stones, and felt her blade shear thrice through semi-solidity to the click of little vicious teeth. Then they broke and ran off over the hillside, and she stumbled on, choking back the scream that wanted so fiercely to break from her lips. She fought that growing desire all the way up to the cave mouth, for she knew that if she gave way she would never cease shrieking until her throat went raw. Blood was trickling from her bitten lip with the effort at silence when she reached the cave. And there, twinkling upon the stones, lay something small and bright and dearly familiar. With a sob of relief she bent and snatched up the crucifix she had torn from her throat when she came out into this land, and as her fingers shut upon it a vast protecting darkness swooped around her. Gasping with relief, she groped her way the step or two that separated her from the cave. Dark lay like a blanket over her eyes, and she welcomed it gladly, remembering how her shadow had lain so awfully upon the hillside as she climbed, remembering the first rays of savage sunlight beating upon her shoulders. She stumbled, 
through the blackness, slowly getting control again over her shaking body and laboring lungs, slowly stilling the panic that the dawning day had roused so inexplicably within her. And as that terror died, the dull weight upon her spirit became strong again. She had all but forgotten it in her panic, but now the impending and unknown dreadfulness grew heavier and more oppressive in the darkness of the underground, and she groped along in a dull stupor of her own depression, slow with the weight of the strange doom she carried. Nothing barred her way. Empty and unmenacing, the way stretched before her blindly stumbling feet. Only once did she hear the sound of another presence, the rasp of hoarse breathing and the scrape of a scaly hide against the stone. But it must have been outside the range of her own passage, for she encountered nothing. When she had come to the end and a cold wall rose up before her, it was scarcely more than automatic habit that made her search along it with groping hand until she came to the mouth of the shaft. It sloped gently up into the dark. She crawled in, trailing her sword, until the rising incline and the lowering roof forced her down upon her face. Then, with toes and fingers, she began to force herself up the spiral, slippery way. Before she had gone very far, she was advancing without effort, scarcely realizing that it was against gravity she moved. The curious dizziness of the shaft had come over her, the strange feeling of change in the very substance of her body, and through the cloudy numbness of it she felt herself sliding round and round the spirals without effort. Again, obscurely, she had the feeling that in the peculiar angles of this shaft was neither up nor down. And for a long while the dizzy circling went on. When the end came at last, and she felt her fingers gripping the edge of that upper opening which lay beneath the floor of Joiry's lowest dungeons, she heaved herself up warily and lay for a while on the cold floor in the dark, while slowly the clouds of dizziness passed from her mind, leaving only that ominous weight within. When the darkness had ceased to circle about her and the floor steadied, she got up dully and swung the cover back over the opening, her hands shuddering from the feel of the cold, smooth ring which had never seen daylight. When she turned from this task, she was aware of the reason for the lessening in the gloom around her. A guttering light outlined the hole in the wall from which she had pulled the stones. Was it a century ago? The brilliance all but blinded her after a long sojourn through blackness, and she stood there a while, swaying a little, one hand to her eyes, before she went out into the familiar torchlight she knew waited for her beyond. Father Gervais, she was sure, anxiously waited for her return. But even he had not dared to follow her through the hole in the wall, down to the brink of the shaft. Somehow she felt that she should be giddy with relief at this safe homecoming, back to humanity again. But as she stumbled over the upward slope toward light and safety, she was conscious of no more than the dullness of whatever unreleased horror it was which still lay so ominously upon her stunned soul. 
She came through the gaping hole in the masonry into the full glare of torches awaiting her, remembering with a wry inward smile how wide she had made the opening, in anticipation of flight from something dreadful when she came back that way. Well, there was no flight from the horror she bore within her. It seemed to her that her heart was slowing, too, missing a beat now and then, and staggering like a weary runner. She came out into the torchlight, stumbling with exhaustion, her mouth scarlet from the blood of her bitten lip, and her bare grieved legs and bare sword blade foul with the deaths of those little horrors that swarmed the cave mouth. From the tangle of red hair her eyes stared out with a bleak, frozen, inward look, as of one who has seen nameless things. That keen, steel-bright beauty which had been hers was as dull and fouled as her sword-blade, and at the look in her eyes, Father Gervais shuddered and crossed himself. Five. They were waiting for her in an uneasy group, the priest anxious and dark, Guillaume splendid in the torchlight, tall and arrogant, a handful of men-at-arms holding the guttering lights and shifting uneasily from one foot to the other. When she saw Guillaume, the light that flared up in her eyes blotted out for a moment the bleak dreadfulness behind them, and her slowing heart leaped like a spurred horse, sending the blood riotously through her veins. Guillaume, magnificent in his armor, leaning upon his sword and staring down at her from his scornful height, the little black beard jutting. Guillaume, to whom Joiry had fallen. Guillaume. That which she carried at the core of her being was heavier than anything else in the world. So heavy she could scarcely keep her knees from bending. So heavy her heart labored under its weight. Almost irresistibly she wanted to give way beneath it to sink down and down under the crushing load, to lie prone and vanquished in the ice-gray, bleak place she was so dimly aware of through the clouds that were rising about her. But there was Guillaume, grim and grinning, and she hated him so very bitterly. She must make the effort. She must, at whatever cost, for she was coming to know that death lay in wait for her if she bore this burden long, that it was a two-edged weapon which could strike at its wielder if the blow were delayed too long. She knew this through the dim mists that were thickening in her brain, and she put all her strength into the immense effort it cost to cross the floor toward him. She stumbled a little, and made one faltering step, and then another and dropped her sword with a clang as she lifted her arms to him. He caught her strongly in a hard, warm clasp, and she heard his laugh, triumphant and hateful, as he bent his head to take the kiss she was raising her mouth to offer. He must have seen, in that last moment before their lips met, the savage glare of victory in her eyes and been startled. But he did not hesitate. His mouth was heavy upon hers. 
It was a long kiss. She felt him stiffen in her arms. She felt a coldness in the lips upon hers, and slowly the dark weight of what she bore lightened, lifted, cleared away from her cloudy mind. Strength flowed back through her richly. The whole world came alive to her once more. Presently she loosed his slack arms and stepped away, looking up into his face with a keen and dreadful triumph upon her own. She saw the ruddiness of him draining away, and the rigidity of stone coming over his scarred features. Only his eyes remained alive, and there was torment in them and understanding. She was glad. She had wanted him to understand what it cost to take Joiry's kiss unbidden. She smiled thinly into his tortured eyes, watching. And she saw something cold and alien seeping through him, permeating him slowly with some unnameable emotion which no man could ever have experienced before. Even she shuddered from the dreadful, cold bleakness looking out of his eyes, and knew as she watched that there must be many emotions and many fears and joys too far outside man's comprehension for any being of flesh to undergo and live. Grayly she saw it spreading through him, and the very substance of his body shuddered under that iron weight. And now came a visible, physical change. Watching, she was aghast to think that in her own body and upon her own soul she had borne the seed of this dreadful flowering, and did not wonder that her heart had slowed under the unbearable weight of it. He was standing rigidly with arms half-bent, just as he stood when she slid from his embrace. And now great shudders began to go over him, as if he were wavering in the torchlight, some grey-faced wraith in armor with torment in his eyes. She saw the sweat beating his forehead. She saw a trickle of blood from his mouth. Then a last shiver went over him violently, and he flung up his head, the little curling beard jutting ceilingward, and the muscles of his strong throat corded and from his lips broke a long, low cry of such utter inhuman strangeness that Girelle felt coldness rippling through her veins, and she put up her hands to her ears to shut it out. It meant something. It expressed some dreadful emotion that was neither sorrow nor anger, but infinitely alien and infinitely sad. Then his long legs buckled at the knees, and he dropped with a clatter of mail and lay still on the stone floor. They knew he was dead. That was unmistakable in the way he lay. Girel stood very still, looking down upon him, and strangely it seemed to her that all the lights in the world had gone out. A moment before he had been so big and vital, so magnificent in the torchlight, she could still feel his kiss upon her mouth and the hard warmth of his arms. Suddenly and blindingly it came upon her what she had done. 
She knew now why such heady violence had flooded her whenever she thought of him. Knew why the light devil in her own form had laughed so derisively. Knew the price she must pay for taking a gift from a demon. She knew there was no light anywhere in the world, now that Guillaume was gone. Father Gervais took her arm gently. She shook him off with an impatient shrug and dropped to one knee beside Guillaume's body, bending her head so that the red hair fell forward to hide her tears. This is Vincent Lauzon. I hope you enjoyed this second Moth Collection site trip. I haven't been able to verify this, and if you can, let me know, but it is claimed that Catherine Lucille Moore used her initials as a pen name to make sure her employer wouldn't find out that she was a writer on the side, and not to forestall any sexism on the part of 1930s fiction readers. I'm not gonna lie to you, that sounds to me like something someone with an agenda made up on Wikipedia. Ask me about Lily Boulanger's Wikipedia entry sometime. In any case, Moore didn't go out of her way to publicize the fact that she was a woman either, and certainly not at the time. Be that as it may, she's been a bit forgotten in the last few decades, and I find that unfortunate. So, here I am, doing my part to let you know she was awesome. I'll be reading another one of her stories later on in this series. Pulp writers wrote a lot and wrote fast. I took the liberty of editing Moore's story, mostly to eliminate a few ungainly repetitions. The Moth Collection side trips are read by Vincent Lauzon. Production by Transuranic. I hope you'll be back next time for another Moth Collection side trip. I'm Tefera Jemian, host and producer on the Yeah! podcast. Join Yeah! as we dig into young adult literature, reviewing new releases, revisiting old classics, and exploring what YA Lit can teach us at any age. Discover the world of YA Lit through exclusive author interviews, book reviews, genre smackdowns, and more. The Yeah! podcast, available in the Podcavern, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah!